0: Hello and welcome to the Organic Gardening Podcast. I'm Sarah Brown and I'm joined by my friend at Garden Organic, Chris Collins. Every month we bring you gardening tips and practical advice the organic way. So this month Chris celebrates the winter days with bare root planting. And our special guest is Don Murray, the new director of horticulture at Garden Organic.
1: Are you interested in the planet? Are you interested in caring for the planet and food and health and well-being and just making the world just that little bit better? Then gardening's for you.
0: And of course, we end with a dip in the monthly postbag when we discuss rat-tailed maggots and the dreaded allium leaf miner. But first, here's a quick word about our brilliant sponsors, the Organic Catalogue. If you're stuck for Christmas present ideas, have a browse. You may find something to treat a gardening companion or even spoil yourself. Go online at OrganicCatalogue.com and if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. Just search for OrganicCatalogue.com. So now I'm off to the virtual potting shed to join Chris down the line. Well, Chris, if I had a trumpet, I'd blow a fanfare right now because... As you know, the Organic Gardening Podcast, our own little podcast, has been crowned Podcast of the Year at the Gardening Media Guild annual presentations and up against serious contenders such as the BBC.
2: Well, I'm thrilled. I really am because I know, you know, there's podcasts are everywhere now, aren't they? Everybody's doing a podcast. So to do this is really, really incredible. And I'm just proud for, for Garden Organic. Just shows
0: how important now more than ever it is to think about being sustainable, to working in conjunction with nature, in your garden that's what makes me so thrilled about winning
2: absolutely i think we're on the way and this is what we all work so hard for to be in a mainstream thing not just something on the edge of the horticultural industry Something that's going to go center stage
0: right let's let's put our feet back on the ground and let's (laughs) get talking about what we're going to be doing this month i'm going to dive straight in and talk about bare root planting it's very topical at the moment because if you want to plant a tree now is the best time of year to be doing it Chris would you like to explain the difference between a potted and a bare root plant
2: well nowadays most people will be used to buying their plants in a container in a pot from a garden center whereas when I started out it wasn't that way at all we used to have what we call bare root which means they'd be grown in open fields no container no pot nothing like that so on the on the parks we'd have an area where we grow a lot of shrubs a lot of whipped trees whips are just like a small single stem quite young maybe one or two seasons three seasons old and they would be dug up and planted in their in final situ or moved only during the dormant season. Now there are massive advantages. I personally feel to bare root planting. Uh, one is you get a plant that's been out in the field, so it means that you're just going to have a tougher plant. It's been used to the conditions; it hasn't been pampered. If you think about it, a container plant, maybe lots come in from places like Holland and Italy. They come in; they've been in a nursery on drip watering, drip feeding, nice and c- uh, cushy lifestyle, supported with stakes. They come into a garden centre; so they're moved from another climate to here. It's going to be harder work to maintain, keep those plants alive once they get into your garden, especially if you your eye off the ball so a good whipped shrub or tree or plant is absolutely superb and planting out when the conditions are mild when there's no frost it's not too wet and that means also the plant can get its roots down through the winter it's not photosynthesizing it's not active in any other ways so that it can concentrate on root production
0: i agree with you entirely i think there's huge benefits to planting bare root for instance you're going to buy the plant online and probably, I hope, from a specialist organic grower. That means you're supporting the work of organic growers, and you're also going to check that they're grown in a sustainable, peat-free way. You're not necessarily going to get that from a pot plant from a garden centre. Buying bare roots avoids the use of plastic pots, so you're reducing the amount of plastic in your growing area. You mention also that they tend to have a healthier root system than those sold in pots. How often have you bought a potted plant, Chris, whether it's a rose or a shrub? And by the time you get it out of the pot, it's almost root bound. In other words, it's constricted by the pot. It's been in the pot for
2: too long. Yeah, you get this thing. It's always important, I think, if you're going to purchase a plant to have a little look at the roots. People forget, neglect that. You know, they look at the top and think, brilliant, but I always knock off a pot before I purchase a plant. And you can have a few problems. You get a thing called spiraling. It's very common in conifers, actually, where the roots will move round and round inside the pot and then you pile it in the ground they don't move out into the soil and they're very vulnerable to wind rock and being blown over in the wind you also can get you'll see a nice big pot and a lot of the time you knock it out especially on big landscape plants that come in and they've, what they've done is they've taken they've visited them from a field they put them in a pot they put loads of soil in, and when you knock it off you get all this free compost <laughs> and a tiny little root ball so you need to be a little bit aware of what you're buying the containers and obviously the big thing as you hit on it there Sarah is the carbon footprint of a container grown plant the bare root plant is going to be local you're going to have any plastic any of that any of that kind of feeds artificial feed or chemical treatments anything like that you're just getting the plant
0: they're also cheaper i have to say chris because Very the much. plants are smaller <laughs> you you mentioned whips for trees and, and hedges and such like but sometimes they only have one or two years growth and that keeps the nursery cost down so yep you quid's in by buying bare root
2: i think if you were going to plant a hedge or a, a little woodland little coppice or something like say in a school grounds with the kids or something like that bare root wit trees are the best you can do because you can plant nice and thick you will get a certain amount of loss but they nurse each other because you can plant them quite densely and you'll get guaranteed survival and you'll get that little coppice or you'll get that hedge. chris what tips would you give for bare root planting well, the main thing I think is to make sure you get your, your roots and your upper part of the plant, the stems, correctly at the soil level. That's really, really important. So what I do is I literally have a, I call it a template, but it's literally a piece of four by two wood. So I just take my hole and lay that at the top so I can measure the root area below the ground and the stem area above it. And that acts as a template. It's very good for planting trees and it makes sure you're not planting too high or too low, which can cause fungal infections and, and drainage problems and all sorts. So getting that plant, spot on at soil level is rule one and making sure you firm in there's no air pockets left so the plant can take up water properly
0: brilliant thank you well there's something to cheer up your december month <laughs> get planting <laughs> get
2: planting indeed you can't it's to put a smile on your face anytime
0: <laughs> so what else is going on in december well i would say don't forget to give your compost heap a christmas treat all those veg peelings all the scrunched up paper and cardboard you know all that that excess from christmas Just put it on the compost heap and it will rot down. You've got that nice mix of green and brown. That'll give the the compost good structure and as it rots down over the next few months, it's going to be ready for you to use to feed your plants in the growing season.
2: Yeah, it's our gold dust, isn't it, Sarah, really, the compost. So you always never take your eye off the ball with a compost, isn't it, really? Always be feeding it and thinking about it.
0: Think of your compost heap as your friend. Give it a good yes, Christmas. Again.
2: Exactly. It's a good way to look at it. I think maybe the other thing to mention as well this time of year, I mean, I'm re-landscaping my allotment at the moment. It's quite a big job. So I, I'm putting in new raised beds and stuff and paths. It's great fun, but I have to be a little bit careful about walking on my soil because when it's been quite wet recently and you can end up compressing the soil destroying the structure creating a a situation where it won't drain properly so just be aware of not treading on the soil too much if you can just walk on planks if you need to cut over it
0: that's such a good point Chris you're absolutely right and I've also been using autumn leaves as a mulch these have just fallen from the tree luckily as you know I have this huge oak tree beside my garden and already the beds are covered with it and I'm not going to clear that because the mulch will protect that soil over winter. There's no need to put compost down now. That's a waste, frankly, because it's not going to be, there's no plants that are going to take it up. But those leaves will act as a lovely mulch, like a blanket over the soil. And I'll tell you something else, the earthworms will love them. They'll come up, pull them down, (laughs) and that'll add nutrients into the soil and aerate the soil. So again, it's ready for planting in the spring.
2: Yeah, those worms will be loving that oak tree. Bit of symbiosis going on there, definitely. In London, Surrey I still have weeds popping up. I mean, you get, I get quite mild weather at this part of the world, and always best to keep an eye on weeds and make sure that, you know, you don't end up with a bigger problem come the spring when everything starts to move again.
0: That's so true, Chris. And when the soil is damp and loose like it is at the moment, it's actually not difficult to pull up those weeds, those perennial weeds with the large root systems. Great. Okay. so, well, it's December and you know what that means, Chris. It's Christmas.
2: (laughs) Whether
0: you you like it or not, whether you're in lockdown or not, we've got Christmas. What Christmas presents have you got in mind, either for yourself or for anyone else?
2: Well, I think, you know, my good lady has got more and more into growing stuff from seed over there. I've infected her with this passion, I think, a little bit of growing stuff from seed. So I'm a member of the Heritage Seed Library. So I've got access to some amazing uh, varieties of seeds. I, I love, One of my favourites is the London carrot. I love a Cockney carrot. You know that. That's a good one. And uh, so I'm going to give her a selection of those for a Christmas present so she can get growing in the spring.
0: Oh, that's a nice idea. You know, you, you could even give membership to the Heritage Seed Library as a present. If you just go online to the Garden Organic website and then become a member of Garden Organic, you can add on to it membership of the Heritage Seed Library.
2: Absolutely perfect idea. Brilliant idea. And what about you, Sarah? Are you uh, going to get whisked off to the Bahamas for three weeks or something like that for Christmas?
0: If only, Chris, <laughs> if only. No, i tell you what I'd like for Christmas. I got no less than five climbing roses going up the front and the back of my house and I was out the other weekend cutting them back because it's a good idea to cut back those long whippy trails of climbing roses before the winter winds. and I thought you know I really need a decent pair of gloves to do this you know those really smart ones like gauntlets they're leather and they cover not just your hands but they go up your arms as well that's what i'd like for christmas
2: nice and practical as always sarah
0: (laughs) well whatever father christmas brings you chris i hope it's a good time for you and a good break we'll be talking to each other again in january
2: in the new year the next year let's hope it's not quite as strange as 2028 and i'll say a very merry christmas to all our listeners and thank you thank you for tuning in we really do appreciate it don't we sarah
0: absolutely chris happy christmas to everyone
2: happy christmas
0: it's time for our special guest. This month is Don Murray, Garden Organic's new appointment as Director of Horticulture. Don shares with me his very personal story of his horticultural career from a teenage apprentice in Scotland to studying orchids in the American rainforests and his exciting time at the Eden Project in Cornwall. It's an inspirational journey. Hi, Don. It's really nice to speak to you.
1: Sarah, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you. And of
0: course, you and I probably should be sitting opposite each other in the office, but that's not happening at the moment. Welcome to Garden Organic.
1: Thank you very much. So this is my day 10. I think.
0: How exciting. It's all ahead of you.
3: Yeah, indeed.
0: Well, before we talk about that, because I'm sure you have got plans, can we scroll back a bit? Because I think listeners will be really interested to hear about where you've worked before and indeed what got you into gardening in the first place. I know, for instance, that you spent a long time at the Eden Project down in Cornwall.
1: That's right. Eden. Oh, I dispose words. It just lifts the soul. It lifts my heart. Eden is magical. It's, it's a transformational project and I was so lucky. So I was there in 2000. It just opened its gates.
0: One of the first people to work there then?
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I was. Yeah. What was your role? So when I joined, I was the curator of the rainforest biome. So yes, I was in charge of the, the largest conservatory in the world. <gasps> Because I think
0: we all have images of those large, large glass domes and the world within them. That was your office, so to speak. Is that right?
1: It it was. And what an office it was. Uh, It was incredible. I spent, it must have been a good few years as the curator of a rainforest biome. And then I got promoted to the head of horticulture, which was an absolute delight.
0: John, can I ask a practical question? If you were there right at the beginning of the project, was that big biome, that big the last was it empty? And were you responsible for populating it, for planting it?
1: After me, I, I came in once all that heavy lifting was done. That, <laughs> that's when I came in. So a chap called Robin lott was in charge of the actual planting up, and uh, he, he did an amazing job. And when I came in, I did the uh, fine tuning because my my background is around tropical ecology, so I was able to look at the rainforest, look at how they're made up, you know, the understory, the canopy. And then I was able to finesse the uh, rainforest biome and make it look real. That was always the intent. The intent was for many, many people who maybe could never visit a real rainforest. How do you make it real? How do you make it feel like a tropical rainforest? It must be been?
0: sound and smell as well as planting. That's it?
1: right. Two years in, I was in the biome. I noticed somebody just standing crying. Crying with joy. They they, 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 they couldn't believe how incredible. It was actually someone from Africa. They just felt at home. The temperature, the feeling, the plants. And that made my heart, you know, really sing. And I think, you know, after all the millions of visitors, I think everyone who enters the rainforest biome gets that sense of, wow, this is what a tropical rainforest feels like and looks like and smells like. Mm-hmm. So all the senses, so bombarding the senses is really important.
0: And and as a horticulturalist, what are the challenges?
1: Challenges is to keep on top of pests and diseases because, you know, pests and diseases can quickly get out of control. but you're dealing
0: on a huge scale oh yeah
1: I mean everything everything you think about your conservatory at home and you multiply that by a million times you know it's it's all the same issues so uh, mildew and all that kind of stuff challenging but fun so much fun
0: Mm, I can imagine every day has got a huge to-do list
1: the thing about the Eden project it's not actually about plants this is the bizarre thing. Mm -hmm. The the amazing thing that Eden has done is that we we didn't use these plants to tell the story about people. Mm -hmm. So Eden is about people. It's about our impact, positive or negative, we have on this amazing planet. And you start thinking about in the context of what gardeners do. You know, if you start thinking about what is it a gardener does, a horticulturalist? We provide food. To feed the world we beautify our neighbourhoods we decorate gardens and we play this really significant role in maintaining that global health and well-being
0: because and we, we've created a natural environment no matter how small yeah. where nature and wildlife and all sorts of life ecosystems can exist
1: that's right that's right and, and we, we do this gardeners do this so seeds of water Take a sprinkle of ingenuity. And the impact that gardening has on the globe is amazing. And often we don't take that moment to think about it. So places like the Eden Project, in my heart, they, they really resonate because it's about saying, this is what we can do. You know, people can do really good in this world. It's not all dim and gloom. I mean, the, the impacts and the challenges that we face globally, but like climate, you've got biodiversity, you've got food security. And the key blocker, key big blocker is this geopolitical boundaries that exist. It's people that block mm. things. Mm. And Eden Project is that kind of can-do spirit. It's that sort of, you know, we can make a difference. And we are making a difference. It's not all doom and gloom. That's really lovely and
0: positive to hear.
1: The Eden Project sparked many other gardens across the world that I was involved with. I was really lucky to kickstart a new team. And then I called it the knowledge transfer team focused on basically consultancy work, very early shoots of what is now called Eden Project International. And if you take a look on the uh, website, so it's about taking Eden Projects in different continents of the world but doing it in a very different way. The, the idea of a concept isn't to build the same as what's in Carmel. It's, each country needs to develop and imagine what its Eden project is going to look like. Uh, so always these little other Edens, if you like, this kind of philosophy of we can change the world, we can do good. Influencing change, I think that's really heartwarming when you can be a gardener like myself. I'm a gardener. and I'm really proud of that. But now I can do all this this other stuff. Uh, Certainly when I was 15 years old, you know, I would never have dreamt uh, I would have been involved in projects like Eden.
0: Okay, Uh, let's just let's go back to the 15 year old Don. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Was it then that you decided you'd like to be a gardener?
1: Oh, yeah. So when I was 15, I had hair. That that was was a a bonus. So when I was 15, I I knew I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a gardener. And boy, I was mocked for that. Okay. So have a garden in your home or what? Yeah, so my, my, my dad, my dad was a fireman and he had his little bit of garden. So he grew vegetables, raspberries, he had these flower beds. There was a real jumble because my grandfather, my dad's side, his garden was very formal. On my mum's my side, her garden, my granny's garden was a jumble. It was a mess, but it was beautiful. It was natural. So I remember as a, as a boy, you know, as a young, very young boy, five, maybe six, I was out in the garden and I remember uh, munching away on uh, peas, you know, kind of cracking open the pea shells, popping them and munching away and, and just loving those moments with my dad and my grandfather. Yeah. You know, just, it actually brings a little tear to my eye because it's my, my, my dad passed away uh, about 10 years, over 10 years ago. And he loved his garden.
0: And I think it's, you're right, I think the garden is the connection with your, with your parents, with your grandparents, with your whole family. I can't tell you the number of people that have said to me, oh yes, I learnt. I learnt my love of gardening, very often through their grandparents, because there's that sense of time with them, special time.
1: Yeah, and I remember with my gran, she attracted, or her garden attracted wildlife. So, hedgehogs, birds, stray cats. I remember I really got involved in that everything every aspect of mm, nature. Mm.
0: So now you you're 15 you've got a full head of hair. Yeah. <laughs> And you're getting teased at school because you're telling everyone you want to be a gardener.
1: Yeah, there's a thing back then called youth training schemes.
0: Which part Uh, of the country are we talking about? Oh, this
1: is so this is uh, so I was brought up in Grangemouth. For anyone who's driven past Grangemouth, it's that big orange glow. It's it's a petrochemical town. So so between Edinburgh and Glasgow. Okay. My horticultural career when it started, and it was a youth training scheme. Uh, I, I joined the National Trust for Scotland, and I went to a small garden just outside Edinburgh called Bellhaven, Bellhaven Gardens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small five acre garden, and this is when it all my journey really started and I couldn't have got the best start because who was in charge of Bellhaven Gardens was the late Sir George Taylor. Now, Sir George Taylor, he was one of the few people who was both Regis Keeper at Kew Gardens and Royal Botanic Gardens, Edinburgh.
0: Wow. And good at sharing his knowledge?
1: Very good. Uh, as I say, I, I couldn't have got a better start. Then I went on to the National Trust for Scotland's Freve Gardens. So it was the uh, Freed School of Gardening on the Scottish borders. That was a two year practical gardening program. In fact, it was called the School of Gardening. And I knew, and I actually knew when I was 12 that I wanted to go there because when I visited freeve Gardens, I met up with Bill Heen, who was the principal. I bumped into him because I recognized his face and, uh, and I mm. nervously said hello and introduced myself. I was only 12.
0: Wow. This and, is impressive.
1: And, and said, you know, I would love to come and, and you know, I would love to join, you know, and be here. And and I remember it was it was Bill Heen but said, Oh, you should uh, you should apply for the youth training scheme.
0: And is that the same now? If if you were a fifteen year old now and you wanted to do the same thing, would it be similar?
1: Yes. So, Free still runs its School of Horticulture, and well done, National Trust for Scotland, for keeping that going. Yeah. Uh, the programme has changed a little bit, but the same sentiment is there. It's about your in, learning the principles and practices of horticulture gardening.
0: We'll come back to you, because and, 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 I love your history, and, and we'll go through some of the other gardens you've worked at, at Mount Stewart and at Birmingham Botanics and whatever, but I just want to keep on the theme of. If you wanted to be a gardener now, what do you feel are the challenges now, this current generation?
1: That I think gardening is it's almost like a rebranding of gardening because it's oh so much more. If you say, look, are you interested in the planet? Are you interested in caring for the planet and food and health and well-being? And just making the world that just that little bit better, mm. then gardening's for you.
0: Um, ah, that's interesting. Not, and that might be why gardeners now want to do it. Rather than learning all the Latin names and the science of pruning, they actually recognise the benefits of creating a natural environment within their gardens.
1: I think so. Mm. I'm passionate about things like apprenticeships. I'm passionate about getting people, young people, to anyone really, uh, but, a bias towards getting young people into horticulture, and horticulture is wide open for anyone it's it's for anyone. It doesn't matter who you are or what you are it doesn't matter it's It's open to everyone. And that's a great thing about gardening. You can do it on small scale you can do it on a large scale.
0: Let's get back to the young Don from these various training gardens that you worked in and you you learnt your skill. what was your first big
1: job? Quite Difficult to say because something really bizarre happened when I was at Threve. The National Trust have an exchange program with the U.S. So Mm -hmm. when I finished Threve, I was still 17, just about to turn 18. And I went over to America. So I ended up taking an internship with a botanic garden called Mary Selby. Uh, Whereabouts in America? So this was uh, Sarasota, Florida. Mm -hmm. So from, you know, a young Scots lad,
0: from yeah. Grangemouth.
1: from to Grange, Florida Grange. and when i was a teenager there was a cop show called Miami Vice <laughs> yes. and you know i was i was young and the, the, the idea of going to the shiny florida cuz obviously this tv show was based in miami and i thought wow that just that just seems great yeah so anyway i had had an interest in orchids that's why i ended up going to Mary selby botanic gardens because they're the the only botanic garden in the world that focuses on epiphytes epiphytes are plants that grow on other plants but don't take any nutrients from them so Mm -hmm. orchids bromeliads that three months turned into almost six seven years wow because more than 40 percent of all lo- known living terrestrial organisms live up in the treetops
0: which is so way it, beyond yeah. the ordinary mortals vision isn't it because right. it's so high and so dense
1: that's right so you have got this massive hub of biodiversity and uh, so I, I got involved in this kind of whole loss of biodiversity this outcry back then about we're mm. losing all these species and lo and behold here we are 2020 and we're still talking about the loss of biodiversity
0: and we're still losing
1: them yeah and, you know so the there's this thing called backdrop species. So for every single species that is, we know has been lost, behind that, there's several more that we've just lost. So I got really involved in rainforest.
0: You would never have known, having started off with the National Trust in Scotland, that well, the next seven years of your life couldn't be more different.
1: Yeah, and it's profound. Because remember, I'm still a gardener. so what
0: brought you back
1: home i kind of jumped around because after selby i went off to the university of missouri st louis well actually in between all that Uh, my boss meg said look you have to go and get a degree uh and i was like a a degree (laughs) Uh, oh oh, gosh and i thought i'll never be able to do a master's degree and i ended up going to the university of reading and I did for a diploma in pure and applied plant and fungal taxonomy. So this kid in Grangemouth with a diploma in gardening, a few years doing research, so suddenly doing a master's. Uh, oh wow. So just before Christmas, a job came up, curator, Birmingham Botanic Gardens and Glasshouses, Edgbaston. Mm. I thought, "Ooh, I just turned 27." And I remember my dad, my dad said, "Donald, you need to get a real job." <laughs>
0: Like every day, yeah, does yeah, something.
1: Like, <laughs> yeah. No, because I've been jumping around doing all this this work in Peru or Belize and swinging around the treetops. Uh, <laughs> They were always trying to draw down funding and try to get research grants. And, you know, I was living from hand to mouth, really. And my my dad and my mum supported me. So anyway, I I grew up at 27 and ended up as I think I was the youngest curator uh, in, in the UK at that time.
0: What I love about that story is that you started off very much. Your learning was very practical. Practical, practical, practical. Then you did the degree or the master's and then you got the job. And I really like that way around because I think... Th- The the so-called mature academic student is very often the most applied and the most dedicated and gets the most from it. I think the average 17, 18 year old that goes to university doesn't necessarily get that same depth of involvement with their degree that the mature student does.
1: Absolutely. I think there's two sides of this story. For those who don't have a degree, the world is still your oyster. Mm. For those who have a degree, the world is still your oyster. I think it's about who you allow into your world. And I have been absolutely really fortunate to have so many people who have been interested in me.
0: Uh, Well, you you see, I would add to that that it's not so much who you let in. It's I think the other side of that coin is who you open up to true. so it seems from hearing you talk that the young Don was actually a very open person open to experiences and that's what the world loves and the world will then feed you
1: that's true and uh, when I went to Birmingham Botanics, I remember having the, the conversation with the Board of Trustees. I quickly realised that that possibility of moving from curator to being potentially the, the chief exec of Birmingham Botanic Gardens was was amazing. And,
0: and did that uh, happen?
1: No. So I, I, I met the love of my life, Becky. Everything was great. And for four years, I was at Birmingham Botanics. And of course, the Eden Project came along.
0: Ah, So you said, sorry, Birmingham, Eden
1: calls. Well, it it called because it it drew me back into that rainforest. I mean, I was I was missing tropics. I was missing research. So from Birmingham, I went to the Eden Project.
0: Oh, that's a fascinating story. Let's also bring in Mount Stewart. Now, this is a garden up in the Scottish Islands.
1: That's right. And I fell in love with Mount Stuart when I was a teenager. The island life, the community. and
0: Describe it to me. I don't know it.
1: So Mount Stewart is on the Isle of Butte. The Isle of Butte is, if you imagine where Glasgow is, mm-hmm. travel west from Glasgow and you'll hit the uh, Isle of Butte. It's a commuter island. It's not a far-flung island. Okay. It's, so I was at the Eden Project, and Becky and I really, we, we spoke at length because my affair in life was with Eden. So I made a decision that, okay, it can't all just be about work. So a bit of a new start. Yeah, I went for it. So, so the
0: two of you went to Mount Stewart and described the garden to me there.
1: It's a majestic 650-acre garden of arboretum designed by Moss and deep history
0: Victorian
1: It goes back to 1700s oh okay
0: earlier
1: then yes uh, so it's the uh, Mount Stuart is the family of the uh, Butte family the Stuart's family that transformed the UK obviously with Cardiff Dock
0: and this so fabulous Butte Park in, in the centre yeah, of Cardiff which right. I know well yes
1: that's right and one of the Arrows one of the founders of Kew Gardens okay. so we so are talking Ooh, a yeah. really eminent family really big on plants. So the idea of going to Mount Stuart was to restore the gardens and to bring it back to its former glory. So Butte was transformational and sadly for Becky and I parted company. Ah. Yeah. So, you know, after 20 years. It, I'm
0: sorry uh, about
1: that. So from Mount Stewart popped over to the Newton in Somerset.
0: Oh, the Newt. That's right. Yeah,
1: yes. So the, the Newt is the new kid on the block. is is, is an amazing garden, a beautiful garden, well, well worth visiting.
0: And again, you were brought in to bring organic techniques and organic ideas into the Newt.
1: I don't think they really know what they wanted me to do. But certainly I was bringing in that sustainability ethos.
0: Because something I haven't talked to you about all the way through this, whether in the rainforest, Grangemouth or Mount Stewart, presumably organics always been important to you because of your love of the natural environment.
1: It has. Absolutely. I think for me, what has always been the, the lead has been around the planet, sustainability. Organic is something that I've practised. It's something that I naturally do. But I'm really interested in how do you make sustainable horticulture the norm? What, What gets my goat a little bit is... Organic is seen as an alternative. Mm. And I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, after 33 years of gardening, not just gardening, but also being involved in ecology, biodiversity, conservation, transformational projects around community and people working with big business. I really, m- maybe I'm naive, but I really believe there's good in everyone. Everyone, mm-hmm. everyone has that 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 goodness in them. Everyone wants to leave a legacy, to do that little bit better. And I think it's for organic. It's around saying, look, chill. We we know what we're about. We know that we're for the good. But how do we how do we help others come more organic? Or be more sustainable, uh, and I'm really interested in that. And, uh, I'm, I'm interested in this kind of 21st century organic horticulture. What does it mean? I mean
0: Less it- rules and regulations that which the term organic implies, and more just about practical application, practical understanding.
1: In my head, because I'm only, what, day nine or ten into the job. It's all right.
0: We won't hold you to it, Don, but (laughs) yes, far ahead. (laughs) there's
1: there's, There's a thinking around if we were to be able to easily provide seven easy steps into being more sustainable. Which is shorthand for being organic. So, if we were to approach businesses, so for example, in the lockdown and in this kind of pandemic, we're seeing a lot of gardeners take up allotments, allotment gardeners are turning into smallholders smallholders are turning into production horticulturists if we were to give them seven easy steps you can be organic because i think that's what the customer base wants for some people who want to be ethically sound if you like or to be more sustainable
0: so you're talking about the professional grower rather than us gardeners with our own backyard
1: plots and part yeah But I'm also talking about how professional growers become professional growers. I think COVID-19 has sparked a a lot of interest in people growing, an interest that's been there for a very, very long time. Uh, But I think a lot of newbies are coming into growing. And I think a lot of uh, new growers are realising, well, actually, I really enjoy this. Uh, I'm going to leave my job in the city And I'm going to set up uh, an allotment and the allotment turns into a small holding. And I'm really interested in reaching out to those people to help give that kind of easy guide on how you can be more sustainable in your growing.
0: And I think the, also the implications of your actions, from the type of compost or potting medium that you use, to the, where you source your plants, to how you grow, to encourage natural habitats for insects and birds, whatever—all these things—they all have implications, don't they? Every That's action right. you take in the garden,
1: yeah. If, every every footstep we make, you know, has a has an impact. And I'm also really interested in talking about the truths. So, plant-based chemical for example we're, we're chemicals to say we're chemical free isn't quite true a plant contains chemicals you know we're, we're not some sort of weird alternative we garden organic we've been doing this for over 60 years and a I, I reason why i'm really passionate about garden organic is that we are the voice for sustainable horticulture Mm. Uh, we are one of the guardians of the planet it runs through our our veins and people are interested in that if i can do anything over my time with garden organic is to reach out to as many people as we can because you know what i'm i'm not satisfied with 20 odd thousand members i just think our reach should be so much greater Mm-hmm. So so my, my, my challenge to those who are members is, you know, go and get another 10 people to join.
0: Don't forget yep. we have a lot of supporters who may not sure. be officially members, but around the world they support the work that we're doing.
1: That's right. I think, again, this, this pandemic has really hit people in many, many ways. And it's making lots of people think about the natural world and what it actually means and, and our impact. We have on this planet.
0: Yeah. Well, Don, you've given us your your colleagues at Garden Organic a task. Seven simple steps. We'll be working on it. Don't worry. Sadly, we've run out of time. There's so much more. I hope you'll come back again and you'll talk to us again on the podcast. But until then, thank you very much for joining.
1: Thank you. Us. Thank you.
0: And now it's time to open the post bag. Chris and I are joined by our colleague Hannah as well as a new voice to the podcast, that of Sally Cunningham. Sally is a walking encyclopedia of all things entomological, and she's given advice on organic growing to Garden Organic members for how many years is it now, Sally?
3: Oh, dear. Um, It's over 20.
0: Well,
4: it's great that you can join us. Thank you. Hannah, let's have our first question. Hello. Yes. So the first one's quite an interesting one. So someone's written in and said they use self-watering pots for their tomatoes, cucumbers and sweet peppers in the greenhouse. But they're a little bit concerned because when they empty them out, they found lozenge shaped whitish grubs with a long tail in the water in the watering mat. Sometimes they find they've crawled out onto the greenhouse floor. Sally, this sounds like a good one for you to kick us off with.
3: Ah, well, I think I know what these are. These are probably rat tailed maggots. Um They're distinctly um, revolting looking. Usually they're quite dark because they grow in dirty places like the bottom of water butts or run off from a manure heap. But if they're in a relatively um, clean bit, they might be a bit paler. The distinctive feature is this weird construction at the tail where they've got this really long tail. And what what it is, it's so they can breathe underwater. They stick this tail up to the surface and actually pull oxygen down through it when the water's too oxygen deficient because it's so full of absolute rubbish. Um, Are
0: they going to harm the plants?
3: No, no, they they hatch out into drone flies. They're a, a big hover fly, look a bit similar to a bumblebee and um, obviously the maggots just tidy up sort of revolting water sources But the adults are good pollinators and you'll see them in the garden almost everywhere. They tend to settle on flowers and they're around for a really long time. So they're excellent pollinators.
2: I I love the idea of snorkeling maggots, I have to say. Mm. Is there a danger, Sally, that um, you might confuse these with something like a vine weevil grub and think it's something that you want to eradicate?
3: Well, you might you might think, yuck, that needs squashing. They're not really attractive. They're they're sort of that semi-transparent, almost look plasticky, but they've got no legs and a not really discernible head whereas a vine weevil larva's ridged it's it's less wriggly and um, of course they have got a very discernible head the other thing is rat-tailed maggots are almost lively compared with a, a vine weevil larva and it's the old story if it's run away by the time you thought should a stamp on it it was a goodie because it was a predator <laughs> that's brilliant
0: so i'm guessing you're going to say don't eradicate them
3: No, let let them be. I mean, if you really don't want them in your self-watering pot, put them in the water, but there's there's going to be enough dead leaves and things in there for them to feed off. It doesn't matter how clean you keep your water, but there's always something grotty goes into it.
4: Okay, that's really interesting. Thank you. So the second question we've got, now this is something close to my heart because I've had the same problems. Someone's written in to say they've planted over 50 leeks this year, but they're looking very strange. The stems are twisted and starting to rot. Can we help? Sarah, I think you've had this challenge too, haven't you? Absolutely, Hannah. It's the allium leaf
0: minor. It's devastating, absolutely devastating. What happens is, as the listener says, the stems of the leaf begin to twist. And when you look at them, they are starting to rot and go mushy. They go brown and and mushy if you peel back the leaves you see inside little dark specks tiny little specks Mm. like a, a flea dirt or something and also i notice you've also got a very small little pupae which is whitish color very small like a very tiny little caterpillar and that's the sure fire sign of the allium leaf miner that's taken hold in your crop. Now I had it last year in my leeks, I grow in a raised bed system and I thought okay this year I'm going to move right away from the furthest raised bed thinking I would escape the pest and exactly the same thing happened again this autumn. I dug up my first leeks and there it was um Sally I guess my question to you is how does it travel and am I ever going to be able to grow leeks again
3: Ah Well, they fly, and they fly quite strongly. At the moment, unless we find a natural predator or we breed leeks with some resistance, and I'm not sure how you can breed resistance in, sorry, you've had it. In theory, you can net them, but they're so tiny. I mean, the adults are less than three millimetres. And actually, the practicalities of keeping something as big as a leek covered, um, possibly in a a really fine mesh tunnel, but you'd have to make sure the door was absolutely insect-proof. You'd also need to make sure there were no pupae in the soil at all or on your boots or on the transplants.
4: This is sounding very, very difficult then. Yeah, and leeks used to be such an easy crop. I think it's a a particular problem in the Midlands. Is that right, Sally, or is it more widespread? Yes,
3: they came in originally on a consignment from Birmingham Airport and they've been spreading out ever since. We had them come to where I live about six or seven years ago and I haven't been able to grow leeks properly since. It's very depressing.
2: Chris, what about you? Down in well, London, well, uh, you'll be glad to hear my leaks, and I've got a lot of them. Are absolutely fine, and we'll be <laughs> on the dinner table come Christmas Day. No two ways about it. I've got them in the ground still, and I'll just let them sit. No problems at all it's interesting mm. um, you're saying that if you do get it it's game over we do have at the bottom end of my allotment we do have um, a problem with onion rot um white rot and I, is that the same Sally once you get that you're kind of done aren't you you can't really grow, um, grow those alliums anymore
3: um, no you, you can but you've got to leave the ground vacant a little bit certainly I'd say allow four or five years but it doesn't death necessarily mean a death sentence There's a couple of things you can do. One, you can use cardboard or seashells as a mulch, and they promote the growth of a fungus which has an antibiotic effect on the white rot. Um, You can grow mustard as a green manure because that will help produce chemicals which kill the spores. And you can also water the liquid that you've boiled onions in on the bare soil. Don't do it too often, about once every six months or so, and that will encourage the spores to germinate. And, of course, there's no onions there, so they'll
2: die. Oh, that's really interesting i know it's we've got it one patch on the allotment down the bottom where um, there's a lot of old guys from uh, cyprus down there who, who are gutted so i'll give them that information i'm, I'm i'll turn to listen to this as well because i'm sure they'll be really happy to hear that
0: that sounds mm-hmm. very positive about the onion white rot uh, i'm just sad about the leak so <laughs> yes.
2: um, we, need a, we need a bio control don't we
0: also sally i was very careful to put the wastage from the leak i didn't put it in my compost heap Good. i actually put it in the,
3: the green waste the food waste bin yeah yeah that's better yes um the only other thing is you can grow some of the ornamental alliums they're a bit tougher they're still edible not as nice as leeks but you know certainly in the spring it means you've got onion flavoring allium caravitense and uh, purple sensation seem to be pretty resilient
2: so
0: sally can i check in the spring if i'm going to plant out or if i'm going to sow onions or spring onions where my allium leaf miner has been in
4: my leeks
3: don't don't don't
4: okay so leeks and onions are off the menu next year
2: yeah <laughs> oh dear well
4: yeah. i'm right with onions so i tell you what chris you bring some leeks next time you're allowed to me you bring well, the leeks i'll bring the onions well that, that's the, that's a christmas present
2: sorted out then
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay so on to our final question so someone's written and said they've stopped watering their house plants but they've heard they should keep misting them on the underside of their leaves and is that correct Chris you're our houseplant expert what would you say
2: yeah I think that uh, we're probably entering a bit a period of jeopardy the winter for most houseplants especially if you're not not that comfortable looking after them I wouldn't say stop watering them completely because obviously they still need a drink from time to time but it's certainly a good idea to mist the leaves now and again the important thing is, is to not keep your houseplants too near a heat source so if you put them a the radiator or fire temperature fluctuations you can, that can cause leaf drop but it also can cause you know you get that browning around the edge of the leaf you've got a big cheese plant you get this brown line all around the edge of the leaf. That's where the plant's transpiring faster than it's taking up water and you get cell death so they're little indications just move them away to appear away from any heat source and that's prevent that but misting also is very good for red spider mite which is a, a nemesis of our house plants and they get into the bottom side of the leaves and suck the sap out and you get this kind of washed out look on the leaf so misting down is a really good way they don't like they like dry conditions they don't like it damp but all years ago i looked after a big citrus collection in a in a greenhouse and we used to mist it down three or four times a day to prevent the red spider mite So that's two good reasons why you should mist And would you just mist with water? Yep, don't need to put anything into it at all So just mist down with water And make sure you give them a good drip And also be careful not to mist any nearby lamps or lights Or don't want anyone electrocuting themselves
3: Best do it in the sink really
2: Yeah, or the bath. I put all mine in. I have have bath parties for my houseplants. Um, That might sound a little bit weird, but it's it's a good way to miss them, I can promise you. It's a nice image, Chris. (laughs) I'd get in there if I could, but I think I might be pushing it a little bit far, really.
4: (laughs) So is there anything else we can be recommending people do to sort of look after their houseplants over the winter? Maybe dust them. Okay. Um,
3: We live in a terraced house and we get quite a bit of condensation because, of course, we've got probably more drafts than a lot of people have. We haven't got double glazing, we've got the old glass that you can see the bubbles still in. Just looking on my own window sill at the moment, I've got a couple of cliviers. And the dust is really thick on the top of those If it's a nice mild foggy day And they're something that's reasonably hardy For a house plant You could even put them outside for um, in the rain You know if, it, if the temperatures are over 10 um, centigrade 50 Fahrenheit You know they, it won't hurt them
4: Just don't forget to bring them in again And coming back to the dusting What does the dusting do for them Other than make them look a little bit nicer Well it means they can
3: breathe more easily You're, you're freeing the stomata up So you're getting better air exchange
4: Okay brilliant Right, well, I I think that's everything. Thank you all. And well, uh, thank you for joining us, Sally. That's really useful. And Chris and Sarah, we'll see you next month. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.
0: Okay, so I admit I'm gutted about the leaks. I guess sometimes you just have to learn that nature doesn't always help in the veg patch. If you want to follow up on anything you've heard in this episode, then click on our website gardenorganic.org.uk forward slash podcast. Don't forget if you become a member of Garden Organic then you'll have full access to our gardening advice team. Next month we celebrate the new year with a couple of listeners who like so many of us made the most of lockdown to explore their gardening passion and Chris and I will be choosing seeds to grow getting that positive feeling about a new growing year ahead of us. Until then, I hope your Christmas break is a happy and loving one and the weather allows you to get out and savour the season. Chris and I send you very warm wishes and wherever you are, a big thank you for listening. Our thanks also to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue and to Kevin McLeod for providing the music.